Hi, I'm George Stalker, and this is the Build Better Software Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tess Renierson, and we're here to talk about engineering and engineering leadership. Tess, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, for people who don't know who you are or what you do, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am the VP of engineering at a small blockchain company based in Berlin, which is called Interchain GmbH. Uh, GmbH is like LLC or Inc, but in German. Um, and I've been working in engineering management at blockchain companies for um, the last, well, I've been in the blockchain space for the last five years or so. Um, and for about the last three years of that, I've been in um in management positions. Um, before that, I was a software engineer at Medium, and before that, I was a computer science student. Okay, now let's let's start backwards. You're working in the uh, blockchain space now. Uh, as someone who's never been in the blockchain space and doesn't really know what that's like, describe you know developing new products in that space. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a really fun space to work in because. <laughs> Lots of things are new, um, and because the like most blockchain projects have a bit of a unique funding model, where um, not necessarily all of the funding, but often a lot of the funding comes from uh, token sales, and so a lot of the people who are sort of like like invested in your product are also your users, um, are also like regular people in a lot of ways. And so there's, there's a, a different kind of like, um, like product development and funding cycle from a lot of other um, uh, like software or tech companies, I would say. Um, and I think that gives you like a lot of, a lot of latitude and also like a very community oriented um, uh, way to do your work when you're building software. And you're in a nascent market. I mean, we like, we don't know the full potential of blockchain and we haven't at least seen it realized yet. So how do you as a leader, how do you, you know, work within that that largely unexplored territory? Yeah, totally. That's a really good question. Um, so when I got started in the blockchain space, um, it was 2015 um, and I joined a, a, a tiny blockchain company which was called Chain um, because this was early enough in the sort of like blockchain you know, life cycle that you could actually call your blockchain company, something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, Chain worked on like a really, really wide range of, of products built, you know, first with Bitcoin and then kind of like our own um, blockchain product and um, some stuff with like cloud blockchains, like explored a really, really wide range of, of products that you could build with blockchains. Um, and none of them really stuck. Um, and the team ultimately got acquired by another blockchain company, um, which is a whole other story. But anyway, what I learned from that experience was that even though I am personally super, super excited about the technology behind blockchains, I don't really think I'm like the person who's going to build like a great product from it, at least not a great end user product. And it's funny because I think that is like kind of the thing that needs to happen for the blockchain industry to really advance. Like, like when we get, when we finally have something that you know is used by by regular people, by everyday people, not just by like crypto nerds. Um, I think that that will be a huge milestone for the whole industry. But I'm not sure that like I am the person to work on that particular effort. What I realized is that I'm really excited about the infrastructure and like kind of the lower level stuff. So what I work on now is um, mostly a consensus algorithm, which is basically like one of the key building blocks for building blockchains, um, no pun intended. Um, and so it's, it's just like a, a lower level thing. And so uh, most of our users are other engineering teams that are also in the blockchain space and they are building, um, most of them are building products that can be used by end users or again, by like non blockchain teams. So I'm kind of like one step removed actually from, from like the product product um, process. And so what we think about really is just like, <laughs> you know, what do we, what do we need to do to make this tool, basically, this piece of infrastructure, um, as stable as possible, as secure as possible, um, as standard as possible is actually a really big thing because um, there's so many things you can explore and do and innovate on in the blockchain space. Like, we want to keep everything that we're not trying to experiment with as standard as possible. So that's like something else that we've been really driving towards this year is trying to standardize um, 
you know, as, as much of our, our own pieces as much as possible. Um, so yeah, again, just trying to like build really good software for other engineers fundamentally. Okay. Um, everything I know about blockchain, I learned from the show Silicon Valley. Uh, and so <laughs> I probably know next to nothing. What is a consensus al algorithm and how does it work? Yeah, um, so <laughs> this is one of my favorite subjects, actually. Uh, so if I, if I get too deep, please cut me off. Um, but basically, um, consensus algorithms let a group of computers come to consensus on a value, right? And um, you can do this in a centralized way, in a really easy way, where you say, like, okay, one computer is, you know, the canonical source of truth. And if you need to know what value you should be having, just go ask that. Um, just go ask that computer. For most blockchains, or really for most like open blockchains on open networks where, where anyone should be able to join and it's like truly meant to be decentralized, you don't want to have one um, machine that is like the only source of truth um, because that's, you know, very vulnerable to malicious behavior from that, that single entity. Um, and so broadly speaking, consensus algorithms are, uh, yeah, how you get um, how you get a bunch of computers to come to agreement on a value, but in the blockchain space specifically, we really focus on consensus algorithms that are Byzantine fault tolerant, which is a term that means like, you know, able to withstand uh, behavior from, from the machines, from the computers where they may tell like part of the network one thing and another part of the network another thing. Um, you know, some people say like malicious behavior, uh, which is roughly correct. Um, and yeah, you want to be able to protect against that in a blockchain network because if you can have anyone join, um, you know, you, you're sort of inviting potentially bad actors into your system and you need to be able to withstand a certain amount of that kind of like malicious, malicious or inconsistent behavior. And because the work you're doing is, uh, like I said, largely unexplored, uh, you're relying a lot on theoretical uh, papers and mm -hmm. computer science research. Um, you know, how do you how do you find ways to to learn more about this topic, and and how do you you know how do you level up to where you are with uh, understanding how blockchain works? Yeah, totally. So we have actually like a like a sister company um, that has a lot of researchers in it, and a lot of those folks are from like have an academic background. Um, and uh, they largely are the ones who kind of like design the, um, what's the right way to say this? Like the protocol and especially like the finer kind of like finer details of the protocol. Um, they do a lot of that design work. Um, and they actually also are in the process of formally verifying it using TLA plus. So TLA plus lets you like um, kind of write out your specification um, not using English, but using this language called TLA plus, and then like run it through like a proof checker. And that checker will tell you if, you know, conceptually your algorithm holds. Um, it doesn't test the implementation or anything like that. Um, and that implementation piece is actually really where my team comes in. So, you know, we have a protocol, we have a spec that we're implementing too, and we make a lot of like design decisions around, you know, our implementation details and choices and things like that. Um, but we, my team as it is, is not really like designing the algorithm. Okay. You're taking those designs and you're implementing and, and testing them. Um, mm -hmm. How do you test something like this? <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, I mean, the, the formal verification piece, the TLA plus piece is a huge part of making sure that this is correct. Um, there's a lot of kind of like standard, you know, unit tests, integration tests, things like that, that my team um, works in. And then there's also kind of this like novel sort of emergent way to test these open networks um, that's emerging, which are these, uh, they're called incentivized test nets. So a test net generally is like a blockchain network, but you say, okay, it's going to be like short lived. The value on this network isn't actually worth anything. Often you like reset the network periodically to make sure it doesn't accrue value, you know, test networks, right? Um, an incentivized test net is one where uh, someone basically like organizes a competition uh, on top of that test net and says like, okay, um, anyone who um, 
can execute a certain kind of attack on this network will give you a bunch of money, basically. Anyone who can, you know, make sure that their node um, conforms, you know, can run a node on this network and make sure that it conforms to certain um, constraints for a long enough time will give you some money. And so you kind of set this up. Um, and so uh, in the Cosmos ecosystem, so I work on a project called Tendermint, but Tendermint Tendermint is the consensus algorithm and it underpins this network called the Cosmos network. So most of these test nets are sort of through the Cosmos network. Um, in the Cosmos network, there have been two kind of like major incentivized test nets that have been executed. Um, one pretty recently, a few months ago, and then another one about a year before that. Um, and each of these have had, you know, like on the order of, of dozens or maybe like a hundred teams participating in it. So they each run you know, a node that runs all the software and then they try to like attack each other. Um, and so that's a really great way to like basically, yeah, incentivize people to see if they can, if they can do damage to your stuff, if they can break your stuff. Um, obviously that's not like the, the beginning and the end of it. And that's kind of what we do all, all these things, you know, again, starting with the formal verification with the specification and then kind of like building up. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the incentivized test nets are, are one of the cool things that have come out of the blockchain space. Cool. Now to dive back into the, the people part, because if I stay on this track, we could be here forever. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, in, in my own efforts as an engineering leader and as an engineer, you know, projects that have failed or experiments that have failed, especially when there's business that runs on those experiments or those projects or those products not failing, um, it, it's difficult. And it's, it's hard to maintain morale and to, you know, pick back up and, you know, keep going, uh, especially if you, you know, you're finding a lot of ways that don't work uh, and the business is concerned about cash flow and about, you know, actually uh, turning a profit. As an engineering leader in an unexplored space, you know, how do you handle the, the inevitable setbacks that will occur and how do you, you know, motivate your team when those setbacks do occur? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in a lot of ways, our stakeholders are our community members. And so we, um, I think a huge part of what we do is, you know, trying to communicate as actively and as openly with, um, with community members as possible. And, you know, it's, it's community members who run these incentivized test nets, ultimately, um, because everything we do is open source community members make a lot of contributions so we really are like building all of this in public and we just try to be as transparent as possible with our community which is to say with our stakeholders um just be as transparent as we can be and, and share you know what's going on if we've had any setbacks things like that um you know i think i think setbacks are, are pretty inevitable um, especially when you're like building with technology where you can, um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, like, frankly, right now we're in the middle of a bit of a, a release delay because someone realized that like a certain kind of attack could be executed. You know, you know, when we introduce this new feature, it like opens up the surface area for like a new kind of attack. And so we're like, you know, working again with our, our sort of our research partners to make sure that we have that covered and we're going back and forth with them, you know, and that's the kind of thing where like, we're going to be really transparent with the community about why that's happening and what and how that's happening while also trying to do things like, um, uh, so like Tendermint, the consensus algorithm is kind of at the bottom of the stack in a lot of ways, like like a lot of other pieces in the ecosystem depend on Tendermint and Tendermint doesn't really depend on most of the other things. Um, so we try to like, you know, produce artifacts that are downstream dependent projects can use to, um, to, to move forward. So we're not blocking them. So even though, for example, in this case, we, we don't have a release out, like we wanted to have a release out a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's been delayed. Um, but we managed to, to give them all what we call an integration target. So it's kind of like a release candidate um, where, you know, the APIs are exactly the way they're going to be when we actually do the, the release. The features are all the same. It's just missing this like protection against this one attack. So we're saying like, don't, you know, don't use this don't integration attack, target yeah. in, pub, in, in production, right? But if you want to like upgrade your software to use our next version, 
you know, this is a thing that you can like play with to get to that point. So, so we do a lot of things like that where we, you know, just try to like unblock people in creative ways um, while also, you know, make, making sure we're, we're covering our butts in terms of things like potential attacks and other like security issues. Right. Now, as, a, as an engineering leader, as a VP of engineering, how do you spend your time? What's a typical day for you like? It varies a lot. Um, uh, right now, because we're sort of at the end of this like release cycle, I've been spending a lot of time um, honestly talking to other leaders at different orgs and trying to figure out like what we really need to make sure is in our next release. And so it's a mix of like, talking to you know the other engineering leaders at other companies in the ecosystem talking to people um on my team um it's honestly it's a lot of a lot of talking and a lot of writing i would say um and the writing actually especially since we went um i mean everyone is like remote now right and so <laughs> since since i spend all my time sitting at my kitchen table um and i'm not necessarily like like trying to have a lot of zoom meetings to get everyone on the same page. I found myself just writing like a ton of Google docs that can be like circulated and dissected. And like, that's kind of the, the thing that I've, I've found has been effective in this environment um, in terms of like building alignment, especially again, in an ecosystem where like, you know, we're one team building one, one thing basically, but we have lots of community members. We have lots of other engineering teams who are our users and our collaborators Again, we have this like sister team that's like doing the research side. So there's just a lot of people who kind of need to all get on the same page. Um, and we do, we do do Zoom meetings sometimes, um, but you can't do that every time you need to make any decision, right? So I spent a lot of time in Google Docs. Yeah, and that's that transition from the, the company you work for was all in person before the pandemic. It's, it's funny, it wasn't exactly all in person, but we had... We had a few um, remote people, and in fact, my uh, like the the Tendermint core team that works on this consensus algorithm was was kind of split. So it was about half co-located in Berlin, and then a few folks in other places around Europe. Um, but um, but we still were having you know a lot of our like planning and kind of like decision making meetings were all happening in person, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously we can't do that anymore. What's that transition been like? Um, I think it's mostly been easier than expected. Um, you know, I think to be totally honest, like, I think, you know, Europe has just not been hit as hard. And so I, I talked to a lot of friends in the States where they're managing a lot of emotional stress as well as like logistical stress because there's so much uncertainty and at least in Germany, at least in Berlin, from what I've seen, um, you know, the logistics are still challenging, but there isn't the same sense of like, kind of like uncertainty about the future overall, if that makes sense. No, it's just been, it's been managed a little bit more directly in Germany than in the U S that's true. And one of the issues that we have is that, as you know, there are 50 states, 50 different ways of doing things. You would hope for a coordinated national response at this point, but we don't have it. And right now we're about to start back to school. And I have, I have, two, I have two kids that are school age. Um, mm. And, you know, my wife is a teacher. Um, and so they're planning on going back in person. Uh, that's what, you know, their school decided to do. Um, yet all the other schools around us are staying remote for the first staying virtual for the first month at least. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And uh, as you said, it's, it's emotional uh, uncertainty mm -hmm. uh, and the mental and the mental load is um, makes it more difficult to concentrate on, mm -hmm. you know, important day-to-day you know, -day activities because always in your mind, there's this thought that, yeah, like we could be you know, three weeks away from us having COVID, from my wife getting it, from my kids getting it, from me getting it. Like, yeah. <sighs> what, do, what do you do? Um, and so that's you know, only, to, only to paint a picture of what it's like over here right now, at least where I'm at um, in the Washington, D.C. area. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that's what we're feeling. And that's a common sentiment that I've heard 
from you know our friends and our neighbors as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've heard from many friends in the U.S. who have you know who have kids who have school age kids, um, and it's it's like a no win situation, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, so one thing you know that frankly is like, I guess a, a sort of privilege in this um, in this unusual circumstance is that um, we don't actually have anyone at my company who has school age kids. Um, one person has like a, like a baby, <laughs> but everyone else is like pretty young and, and doesn't really have families. So um, that's another aspect of like transitioning into sort of the like, you know, pandemic situation that we haven't had to deal with. Um, so in a, in, a, in a funny way, I think that's been kind of a, kind of a privilege for my team. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's made things a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, now there was a recent, uh, I think it was on the orange side. I think it was on hacker news. <laughs> um, but basically the founder of the orange site, you know, tweeted out that, you know, uh, effectively that in five years, you know, the person who comes into the office is going to be the person that gets promoted and the people that stay remote are just basically not going to. Uh, not going to get promoted. Uh, and then, of course, as usual uh, on the internet, uh, it bounces around. Some people think remote work is the way of the future. Other people think that, yeah, no, you're going to have to be in person to get promoted, uh, you know, or there will be a healthy split. Um, what's your view on, you know, what you see the trend towards? You know, is remote asynchronous work where things are headed, or is it really a stopgap and, you know, things will go back to in-person as soon as the pandemic is over? Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to make a prediction for the whole industry, but I bet a lot of teams will stay remote and I bet it will work for them. Um, you know, I think the the one thing that is cool is that we all have learned how to work remotely now. And so, you know, even if that doesn't end up being like the thing that everyone does, if it doesn't, even if it doesn't end up being the default, um, it's a skill, right? And we've we've sort of like across the industry, everyone has like practiced that a little bit. And so my hope is that that basically creates more flexibility and more options for, for everyone, like both for, you know, for, for, for workers as well as for companies. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I have a, a I'm, I'm definitely not on, on the like remote work is the only future side of things, but I also think it like can work, can work pretty well. And I think it will work for a lot of teams. So what has helped you as an engineering leader during this time, um, you know, communicate with your team and, and to you know, keep your team's uh, morale up and keeping them focused on the direction you're taking? Yeah. So um, we do, uh, we do have regular meetings um, and, you know, we begin every um, team meeting with some time for people to just talk about like, how they're doing, um, you know, what what's on their mind, what they did over the weekend, um, and you know that's something we've had been doing actually since before the the pandemic started. But I think it's really useful in terms of kind of like trying to foster some connection. Um, we've also been experimenting with a number of sort of like remote. I don't want to say team building activities exactly, but just like like opportunities for people to connect um, remotely as well. I'm not sure that any of those have been a slam dunk. We've tried a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, we, we obviously tried the like Zoom happy hour a couple of times. Um, we, we tried uh, doing like a cooking class together. Um, we tried doing German lessons together. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky. And I, I don't have a great answer. I'm still experimenting and trying to figure out what the right way to, to connect people is. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm helping uh, a client right now, uh, freelancing for a client, and they have uh, monthly uh, required happy hours. Uh, and it somehow doesn't feel, le it doesn't feel as fun when it's a required happy hour. Right. Um, but it is something at least, right? It's, it's to a, and they, and before this, they were very much in person all the time. And so mm. this has been a real shock to the organization. Everybody's handled it really well. Um, but it's still a shock to the organization because, you know, the organization's DNA was 
in person and now mm-hmm. everybody is forcibly remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that changes the dynamic. Um, and, you know, the first few months are really people adjusting to the new dynamic, you know, while you're in a, in a pandemic, which is, uh, you know, difficult enough without the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing also that we have been aware of that, you know, I think our leadership team wasn't necessarily aware of at the beginning, but it became clearer over time, um, was that there is, again, like almost like privilege associated with being in Europe rather than being in the U.S. right now. And so we have people who are, we have a few people who are in the U.S., um, like on the East Coast, and um, but most of the team is in Europe and most of the team is in Berlin. And, you know, for a little while, people were like, oh, you know, well, we can travel around Europe, which is technically true. I don't know if it's a great idea, but it's technically <laughs> true. Um, we can travel around Europe or like we can meet up in, in, in person in Berlin. Um, and this just, you know, when we started t- talking about it, it just seemed so um, unfair to the Americans. And uh, yeah, some of the Americans were actually like, yeah, we're, we're, we're really unhappy and we're really stressed out. And it like really sucks to see people on the other side of the, the Atlantic, like going to the beach or whatever. Um, so yeah. trying to have more <laughs> sensitivity and awareness around that dynamic, um, is something, something we've done too. And so like, actually we started planning, you know, getting, getting everyone together, like, uh, um, our, our operations person sort of started making some plans. And I was like, look, we can like talk about, talk with people about this, but we cannot commit to anything until the border is open with the U.S. and people feel confident traveling. Like, like we can put these plans in place, but like no one is committing to anything until we know the border's open. So yeah, that's been a new dynamic as well. <laughs> yeah. We, um, in our area, um, everyone wears masks, which is nice, uh, because that's mm-hmm. not true. Even if you go 45 minutes South of here. Wow. Um, Yeah. It, it changes really quickly once you get outside of the bubble that is Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as a family, we've stayed home since March, since mid-March. Uh, and we went to one vacation, but it was to a remote, isolated place that we normally go to. And we you know, know well and we know that we can uh, quarantine ourselves there. Um, but for the most part, there's a lot of anxiousness uh, in the Americas about you know, we want to do things. It's summer. We want to travel. We want to, mm-hmm. like, we want to be normal and this won't let us be normal. And so there's a lot of built up, uh, anger, resentment, um, a little bit of jealousy mm-hmm. about, you know, other parts of the world where, Hey, yeah, they did what they were supposed to. And now everything's fine. Well, not fine, but you know, it's close to fine. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, you know, we're dealing with that. Plus of course the, um, the, the black lives matter protests, mm-hmm against police brutality, which are, you know, long overdue for us to do something about, um, for us to, you know, improve, uh, our justice system. And so you've got all that. And then you've got, of course, in the Americas, it's election season. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that is, you know, with all of these things coming together as a software developer, it's actually, I, I hate to say this, but it's really hard to concentrate on, you know, building software right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you all have it, you know, a better, but I understand that with the, with the regional differences, it's, it's very tough as a leader. Um, yeah, so. totally. I mean, I can even see, so like, I'm probably, obviously I'm American um, and I actually only just moved to Berlin last year. Um, but my team is a really interesting mix of like, you know, Americans living abroad and then a, a bunch of Europeans and, um, and it has even been interesting to see the difference in kind of like the, I don't want to say just stress level, but kind of like general posture towards the world between the Europeans and the Americans. So it's not just like where you are in the world, but it's also like, you know, like I'm worried about my friends and my family in the States. I'm worried about, I'm very worried about the election. Like <laughs> in my one-on-ones with every, with every American on my team, I'm like, are you registered to vote? Do you know how you're getting your ballot remotely? Like, t- yeah. like tell me what you're doing. Like, let's make sure that, that you're ready for this. Um, so uh, yeah, I think, you know, even, even to be physically removed from the situation we're we're feeling it too, in a way. Now you, uh, you, as you said, you're an American, you moved uh, to Berlin. Um, you know, when you join a new company there, every new, every company has its cultural differences, but now you're also an American, you know, moving to Germany and there are, there are cultural differences there. 
what was that experience like? Yeah, so that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, not really because it felt like a huge change for me. I mean, in a funny way, obviously, I was moving abroad. That was a big transition. I was changing teams and changing um you know, a lot of a lot of change happened, obviously, but because I stayed in the same industry, I kept basically the same kind of role. Um, and because my team is very international, and we have a lot of Americans, and our working language in the office is English, and all these things like that, um, you know, and and also frankly, because I came in in a leadership position, and I could say like, we're going to do things this way. You know, I could kind of set. Not that I tried to be. You know, a dictator yeah, about right. anything, obviously, but like, you know, I can, I could definitely bring my preferences and my um, kind of American way of doing things to the table, um, which has also been an interesting uh, challenge in, I'll, I'll give it, go on a slight tangent here, but one thing we've been talking a lot about on my team, um, and partly, honestly, in light of the Black Lives Matter um, protests in the U.S., has been about being more um, hands-on and like like actively working on diversity and inclusion practices in our company and on our teams. Now, the interesting thing for me is that I think I was fairly like, I would say like fluent or competent with this subject in the US. Um, you know, I, I, I built an engineering team that was, had an, had an equal gender split. Um, I had some idea of, you know, what um, like a racially diverse team should look like. And I had some avenues and organizations to work with to help make that happen on my team. I show up in Germany and I'm like, I don't even know what a racially diverse team in a German context should look like. I mean, I know what a homogenous team might look like, but you know, in the US, for example, there's a, there's a big emphasis on um, black and Latino engineers specifically. And that doesn't necessarily make sense like in the German context, you know, like like, like Latinos as an ethnic group are not, are not a big part of Germany, but there are a lot of people from the Middle East. There's a lot of people from Turkey. There's a lot of people from North Africa. And so like, even just like shifting my sense of what um, racial and ethnic diversity looks like, or, or what you should be, should be targeting has been a really interesting kind of like cultural learning experience for me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I still have so much to learn. And honestly, probably like I'll listen to this in a year and I'll be like, wow, I really had no idea what I was talking about even then. Like I'm, I'm really at the beginning of my journey. Um, but that's been, been something that, you know, I'm, I kind of have to learn from scratch um, when I came here. Okay. Yeah. So to go, to go back though, to your original question about sort of like making the cultural leap. Um, I've had a number of friends and other you know, other people in my network ask me, like, you know, what's it like? And frankly, I know a lot of people who are looking at the situation in the U.S. and they're like, maybe it's time to try living abroad for a while. Um, so I think this is a is a is a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, and one thing that I've been asked is like, you know, is it possible to come in as an American, maybe especially as an American who's only worked in the Bay Area, which is true for me, basically and come in and lead like an engineering team at a German company. Um, and I think the answer depends so much on like, first of all, how open-minded you are. Um, you know, are you willing to like try different things and like learn some things from scratch, like the diversity stuff I mentioned, or even like, you know, hiring practices. Um, you can bring a lot of stuff over, but not everything. Um, and then also it depends a lot on whether or not the team you're joining is like international or German. Um, so like, I would say my team is very international. Um, Germans are a minority actually. Um, but there are also teams that are like, you know, the founders are German. Most of the employees are German. The working language might be German. Um, the way that people communicate, even if, you know, you can speak English or speak the same language, like just the general level of, um, enthusiasm or positivity is like radically different. Like a lot of Germans are like, yeah, I've had to work with Americans and everything is awesome. Why is everything awesome all the time <laughs> for, <laughs> for Americans? Um, so just like a different, you know, there, there are just like differences in, in communication and things like that that come up. Um, but I would say there are so many companies here and probably all over Europe that do have that really, really like international um, 
bent that are, I would say, like very, very accessible um, and very easy to, to jump in on as an American. Cool. Um, I have no experience in that, so I have nothing to add there. Uh, <laughs> but you know, going back to you were you're a VP of engineering now. You were an engineering manager previously. Mm -hmm. What was the biggest part of that transition for you from just an engineering manager to now you're the VP of engineering? Yeah, so you know, I've had the VP of engineering title a few places, and they've all been small, right? So um, it's not. Uh, I would say there's there's definitely been a transition, and it's mostly been in kind of like the scope um, of what I've been doing. But it's it's not. It never felt like a huge leap, and I think for me a lot of that also is that the other engineering managers, um, you know, even if they are reporting to me, I really have worked with them as like partners, right? And so, um, you know, maybe maybe I might like coach them through a few things. Um, but typically, like, I view them as, yeah, my, my partners and, like, leading the engineering org and kind of making decisions together. Um, so I think that that has been sort of the, the way that I work as a VPE. Um, I'm trying to think what the biggest – I mean, yeah, the, the biggest difference really is just that, like, when I was responsible just for a single team or maybe, like, two small teams um, – I was a little bit more hands-on with like the product or like sometimes like specific engineering decisions um, or like reviewing code or things like that. Um, and in a VPE role, I tend to be a little bit more oriented towards like all of the engineering teams, right? So like making sure that, um, you know, like our feedback structures across the whole org are uh, working well and stable, making sure that like, you know, if there's a leveling system, that's like fair being applied fairly. Um, making sure that the recruiting processes are, again, fair, you know, being executed well um, and kind of meeting everyone's needs. So it's, it's, it's like more of a, the, yeah, I would say the transition has been more about kind of taking more responsibility for just like a broader scope of things, which for better or for worse means being a little bit less hands-on often with the like, nitty gritty details of, of certain, you know, engineering decisions or things like that. Um, interestingly, right now, I, you know, I am, I am the VPE for Interchange GmbH, and so I do a lot of the stuff that I just described sort of for the whole um, company. And actually, because Interchange GmbH is like 90% engineers, um, a lot of the stuff I do is actually really for like the whole company, not just the engineering teams. Um, but, um, but I'm also kind of like the, the engineering lead for Tenderman Core, this consensus algorithm. So I do have to balance being as, as hands-on as I can be with Tenderman Core, as well as keeping an eye on the larger engineering team, um, which is a tricky balance. I would say I'm still, I'm still learning how to make that work. How often are you able to open up your IDE and, and commit code? Um, it really, it really depends on like everything else that's going on, right? And like where we are kind of in the, the development cycle. Um, and so the, the reality is that that's almost always going to be like the lowest priority thing um, because there's always going to be someone who can, someone else who can do it and probably someone else who can do it better, right? So, um, so it, it varies widely at this point because we've been kind of in the middle of like really trying to get like a release out the door and I've been doing a lot of planning and a lot of talking to people. Um, it's been a while since I committed any, uh, any real code, but I do, I do spend, try to spend a decent amount of time doing code review and just like keeping, uh, keeping an eye on things and, and trying to help out. Yeah. I had a peer mentor, um, back when I was a solutions architect, I had a peer mentor, who, who said to me, you know, optimize for optimize and do the things that only you can do and, and delegate mm -hmm. everything else. Um, and which meant of course that no, I didn't push production code. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I, I was needed in the strategy meetings. I was needed in the design meetings. Um, right. I didn't get a chance to do the things that actually you know, produce software, but the things I do were necessary to produce software. Mm -hmm. um, as an engineering leader, you know, what's your, what's your version of that? 
Yeah, I would say very much the same. Um, you know, and I think um, actually like, uh, so, so one thing that I think hasn't been mentioned on this podcast is that Interchain GmbH is actually like a really young company. So it was actually only founded in February. Um, and it's a funny situation. This is the kind of thing that you can do in the blockchain space. Um, I mentioned earlier, like there's often an unusual funding model. Um, so one thing that can happen and happens somewhat frequently in the blockchain space is that like product or engineering teams can like detach from one company and then like go to another one um, or, or start their own. And so that's actually what happened in this case where we had been working for um, the Tenement core team had been working for a different company that had started the Tenement core project and, and um, fostered it for a long time. Um, and then they kind of wanted to like move in a different direction and do some different stuff with their product and their work. And we were like, you know what? It's like, would be better to just have a place where we can really focus just on this core technology. Um, and so we, so we floated over. Um, and the, the funny thing is that because of that, we've been in the process of like, like rebuilding a lot of our processes and things like that. Um, and so kind of since that transition happened, you know, a lot of my work has been around, yeah, again, like rebuilding a hiring process, um, uh, rebuilding feedback systems, um, things like that. And so my hope and what I anticipate is that as that stuff sort of starts to settle, I'll have a little bit more bandwidth to like get back into Tendermint, you know, Tendermint engineering and that project. Um, but yeah, a lot of what I've been focused on lately has been like, like hiring and like, um, yeah, we just, we just went through our first like feedback cycle as a team, um, which was, which I think was fun. A lot of people were like, I've never gotten formal feedback before. This is really cool. This like validates a lot of things that I thought were probably true about myself, but I wasn't sure. Um, so yeah, I think, I think once a lot of that stuff kind of settles, um, my hope is that I'll get back into touching the code a little bit more. Hmm. Now your, uh, your feedback process, is it a 360 feedback? What does it look like? Yeah, it's a 360 feedback process. Um, and I like, it's the same process I ran at chain and at interstellar actually. Um, I just like brought it over wholesale. Um, and, uh, I had copped that from someone else, um, uh, someone at, uh, the former, I think former VP at Nihilus, uh, had walked me through it. It was really like, he like gave it to me. Um, and I've sort of been adapting it and tweaking it ever since. So it's kind of this, this process that I think is like floated around startups for a little while, but it's a 360 process. Um, people sort of like nominate people who they think are their peers to write them, um, peer reviews and then managers compile the feedback. Um, and they also like write reviews of their managers. Um, and so managers get feedback from their direct reports, but that feedback from the direct reports is like compiled by, you know, another person um, who can kind of act as like a, a filter or like help anonymize anything that might be sensitive. Um, and the, the interesting thing about this feedback process, the thing that I think is really important is that we've really directly explicitly decoupled this feedback from um, any kind of like compensation or leveling. Like we were like, okay, the goal of this process is for you to, to literally just get feedback from your teammates on how you can grow and how you can be better. Um, and we want to incentivize people to be as, as uh, honest as possible. And we know that you all like each other, respect each other, want to help each other out. So if I say, you know, hey, go write a review of your teammate. Oh, and by the way, if it's too negative, like they're not going to get a promotion. Like no one's going to be give the, the constructive feedback in that environment. Um, so we really like narrowed the scope of sort of like what we're trying to achieve with this feedback process. And we were like, look, this is just like to get, you know, personal feedback for your own professional development. And we're not going to use this as a management team to decide like if you're getting promoted or like what level you are or anything like that. That's wonderful. I like, now that you say it, it seems like, yeah, everybody should be doing that. Um, but they don't, uh, what, so what, how do you determine leveling? How do you determine compensation increases? Yeah. Um, that is one of the things that has been a little bit, honestly, like a little bit tricky with the new company because we were like, you know, kind of had a blank slate. Um, we do get our funding from, 
um, a Swiss foundation. <laughs> um, I'm laughing just because I know it sounds like complicated and like I keep introducing pieces to this picture. But again, blockchain companies, all kinds of funny stuff happens. Um, all of our funding comes from a Swiss foundation, which is called the Interchain Foundation. Um, and they have a model that they recommend for um, compensation. Um, they have people and teams all over the world. And so they, they sort of, you know, it's a combination of like people's level, their role, um, the cost of living uh, piece, which I know is like a really hot subject right now with so many people being remote and, and moving around. Um, but they do have like a cost of living multiplier um, in their kind of like calculator. And so they recommend that we use that and we more or less follow that. That doesn't answer the leveling question. Um, we have a ladder that, uh, again, I like borrowed from my uh, previous company, which I like in turn kind of borrowed and adapted from like another um, engineering leader. So again, one of those things that I think has kind of like floated around a number of startups and, and kind of gets adapted and tweaked to everyone's use cases. Um, so we've used that as like a rough, um, uh, a rough guide to get a sense of where people are or should be. Um, and the, the one thing that I would say is interesting about that is there's a pretty heavy emphasis on how you, like, if you're just a really great engineer, like a really great programmer, you can only get so far. You really have to be a great, like, team player and help level the people up around you and ultimately help level the whole company up if you want to, like, proceed all the way through that, that leveling system. Um, so that's kind of the one thing that I would say is, is kind of interesting there. Um, but yeah, so we have, we have like a rough, a rough leveling system, um, combined with this like standardized kind of, uh, calculator, I suppose, from our funding organization. I'm, I'm really gratified to hear that because in tech, uh, the idea of the core skills and the essential skills being as important, if not more important than the technical skills, you know, that, that transition is still happening where we're, we're coming from the old school, you know, programmer, good old boy network of if you're a technical hacker in your basement, then you're fine to no, you yeah. actually have to be able to handle other people and to work together to build software uh, that has a, that has a good outcome. And yeah. so I'm, I'm really glad, gratified to hear that, you know, that's the approach you're taking. I mean, I think it's especially important for blockchain companies and open source projects. Um, and we obviously are both um, because again, we have so many other teams that we're working with potential contributors, you know, like if you're on, like everyone on my team has to be good at collaborating and like giving code reviews to, or, or, or helping out, you know, external contributors who maybe um, they've never spoken to before. They don't know anything about um, maybe there's even like a language barrier. And so, you know, in order to be a successful engineer on my team, you really have to have really great collaboration skills and honestly, like a lot of empathy for the people um, you might be working with. Again, even if you like never see them or speak to them outside of GitHub. Yeah. Um, you worked at, uh, on the subject of, you know, where you're at today, you worked at both Valve and Microsoft as an intern. Now, mm -hmm. what sort of impact did, did working at those well-established companies and Valve with its, you know, internet famous handbook, what, how did that have an impact on you and where you are today? Yeah, the, um, I think Valve particularly had, a, had an impact on me. Um, that was like my first real job. So I had nothing to compare it to, right? And after, after, I, after I left, after my internship ended, people would be like, what was it like? And I was like, it's just like how you work. Like I had never seen anything else. Um, and what became clear to me, and I, I could kind of see this at the time, but it became clearer over time, um, was that you know, in order to make that particular culture and that particular work style work for them, they really sacrificed a lot of other things. Um, so like hiring was really hard. Um, I, I remember, you know, as an intern, I was not on any interview loops, obviously, but I would remember my whole team like going out for interviews constantly. It felt like every week there were like multiple interviews happening. And I don't think they made that many offers because when you have a really, you know, when you have a culture where everyone has to be really, really self-directed, you can only select for those people. That's a hard thing to select for in an interview. Um, the cost of a false positive is like pretty high when you're, when you have that kind of culture. Um, so like, 
So like hiring was, was, I think was pretty hard for them. Um, and not for, for any shortage of like interested or smart people, right. They just were, had a really particular kind of person they needed to hire. Um, you know, I think sort of in the same vein, like the, the workforce wasn't particularly diverse. Um, and you know, at the time I didn't really like understand why that was not ideal. (laughs) Um, but as I've learned more about, you know, why, why diversity and inclusion are important, um, and, and honestly, like as a woman engineer, you know, becoming more aware of what that means, uh, it's, that's become more, um, more important to me too. So anyway, the thing I would say that I learned there is that like, you can have a really particular culture, um, and you will ultimately, you will find people who, who work and, and fit well in that, in that culture. Um, but you're going to like, like the farther you deviate from the norm, the, the higher the cost you're going to pay is, you know, in a sense, that's like one of the things that you're building and experimenting with is your culture. And so it's like, do you want to spend kind of almost like, like product energy or like, like innovation tokens on that cultural piece? Or do you want to reserve that for like your actual product? Um, and I'd say it's a mix. Like I, like I work in a situation now where we spend a lot of uh, innovation tokens on like an unusual org structure, right? Again, the, the thing with the Swiss Foundation, all of these other like sister teams that we work with, it's like an unusual thing. And we spend a lot of time figuring out how to make that work. Um, I think it's worth it, but, um, and I think probably for Valve, like their, their culture is, is worth it. Um, but it, it really, I think did give me a sense of the kinds of trade-offs you can make with your, with your culture. And the innovation token, that is from a blog post that I seem to remember. Oh, there's my Yes, cat. that is a blog post from a blog post by uh, Dan McKinley. Um, and I think about it a lot. I think about innovation tokens a lot. It's one of my, like, um, uh, it's like a, a kind of like a, a mental tool that I break out a lot. And, you know, sometimes if we're thinking about, like, adopting a new technology or, like, adapting a feature or, like, you know, writing our own um, serialization format or whatever. It's like, is this what we want to spend an innovation token on? Um, and just doing that little check has been like really, really, really helpful for me um, and really helpful for my team, I think. And the idea is that you only get so many innovation tokens and, you know, spending them immediately, you know, you lose that innovation token and now you have you know fewer to innovate with and you, your goal should always be to, uh, not innovate, but use what's tried and true where you can. If I remember yeah, or just like be really deliberate about it, right? Like basically I would say the thesis is you want to recognize that doing anything that is innovative or unusual or different is going to cost you more mental cycles, more energy as a team to figure out how to make that work and how to like blaze the trail there. Um, and yeah, just be like, be thoughtful about what you choose to do that with. Now, Tess, in our, in our closing moments, uh, if people want to learn more about you and about what you do, uh, where can they go? Yeah, so um, my Twitter is underscore Tess R. Someone else got Tess R first, so I have the underscore in, fr- in front. Um, and our company website is interchain.berlin. Um, and the most interesting link of all, I think, is our uh, GitHub repo, which is at uh, tenderment slash tenderment. So that's where I think the most interesting stuff is, is, is in there. Awesome. Tess, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was, this was super fun, um, and I had a great time. I enjoyed it. Uh, all right, folks, that's it for this time on the Build Better Software Podcast. I'll hope you join me next time. Bye.